0: This is the Fix Plasm Podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration, and I'm Ralph. This episode continues the theme of fictional secondary worlds intruding into the fictional primary world. For previous discussion, check out the episodes on Lev Grossman's The Magicians, Jonathan Carroll's The Land of Laughs, and Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow. Now, I'm going to cover the first two books in Robert Holdstock's Ryehut Wood series, which are Mithega Wood and the direct sequel, Levondis, published in 1984 and 1988, respectively. Uh, There are seven in total, I believe, of which The Last Avillion was published in July 2009. This, I think, is the author's last novel before his death in November of that year. He was uh, a prolific writer, and his career began in the mid-70s, apparently including novelizations of The Professionals, and also the text copy for a big coffee table book called Space Wars, Worlds and Weapons, where he contributed a number of essays on SF tropes, which is right up my street. So, as usual, I'm going to do a synopsis of both books, then I'm going to talk about themes, and then the role-playing bit. So, without further ado, a synopsis. Okay, I'm going to begin with Mathego Wood. The setting is rural England post-World War II, and young Stephen Huxley has returned home from the war after being injured in a period of convalescence. Now, his childhood home at Oak Lodge It sits on the edge of Ryhope Wood. And he's there to reconnect with his older brother Christian after the recent death of their father George. And while Stephen was convalescing, he received several letters from Christian talking about his unusual marriage to a woman named Gwyneth. And we know from the prologue, which is a letter between George Huxley and his academic collaborator Wynne Jones in 1941, that Gwyneth is not a normal human woman, but some kind of mythic archetype. So Stephen has returned home to see Chris, but it's not long before he returns that Chris leaves him in the middle of the night. And when Steve asks him where he's going, he says cryptically, inward. Chris has suddenly gone and left Steve on his own to explore the estate. Left to his own devices, he has a couple of weird encounters. The first is with someone who seems to be a vagrant, dressed in primitive clothing and, and carrying a bow with an enormous hound. He gives his character food. It's a, it's a really tense scene. This is obviously a, a violent and mysterious character. Later we learn that this is a kind of avatar of Cook Lane, and it's Steve's first encounter with a mithago. But that scene leads to another discovery, when the man's dog uncovers a shallow grave of a woman shot through the eye and Steve works out that this is Gwyneth, Chris's wife. Chris returns, and now he's, he's changed a bit. He's leaner, harder, and more primitive than when he left, and this kicks off the whole metaphysical plot dump. So I'm going to summarise what happens fairly early on in chapter four of the first book of the first book. This is the summary. George Huxley has studied Rye Hopewood and the Mithagos within it At Chris's urging, Steve starts to read his father's diaries. Now, Mythago is a portmanteau of myth and amigo, so mythic image. Um, And several references are given to legendary figures like Robin in the Hood, Jack in the Green, Kukulain and Gwyneth. And these legendary images vary according to the British culture that imagined them. George Huxley's first impressions of Robin Hood, for example, were coloured by his childhood and the stories he knew. But there are earlier versions of Robin Hood with completely different aspects, and it's one of these earlier, more violent Robins which shot Chris's Gwynn through the eye. So then George Huxley says in his notes that there's something about Rye Hopewood that produces the Mithagos, and with the help of Wynne Jones, his collaborator from Oxford, he's actually mapped out this vortex using some fringe scientific methods so within the wood, there are certain gates or stages for different parts of the wood that go further back. And these are marked by landmarks like, for example, the horse shrine. There's some discussion about how long it takes for the images to form. They, they sort of form at the corner of your vision, the periphery. And it takes a series of, of weeks or months for people to generate their own mythagos. Now, finally, Huxley Sr. hypothesizes a sort of Ur-mythago called the Erskamug, which is this primal image which is not biased by human observation. It comes before the myth. That's the summary. Now, this is basically Stephen and Christian chewing over their father's notes and working things out by conversation, by by thinking. There's some references, by the way, to leyline nexuses, and that's one of the ideas about the, uh, this vortex, this centre of power of uh, Ryhope Wood is a convergence of ley lines. So Stephen and Christian come to a conclusion that whilst Christian's Gwyneth is dead, she's also alive somewhere in the wood. So with renewed enthusiasm, uh, Christian dives back into the wood. And then to satisfy his curiosity, Stephen follows him, finding evidence of camps he's made and he finally meets up with him at the point where Christian is confronting the Erskimug, the this primal horror, this enormous um, humanoid boar giant. Christian urges Stephen to flee, and he does so, leaving his brother in the wood. And that's the end of part one of Methago Wood. Part two is longer, but because the first part is so heavily loaded with the metaphysics, the remainder is a bit more straightforward. And it ends up being a sort of adventure into the unknown territories of the wood. I'm not going to go into this plot partly because spoilers, but there are two noteworthy characters that Steve comes across. Now, first, there's his own version of Gwyneth who he encounters, and she's originally not able to speak his language, but soon she masters what appears to be modern English. Now, you could argue that there's telepathy going on, but more likely, because she's his creation, she also picks up his methods of communication. Now, his relationship with her is is a driving force for the rest of the plot. Bear in mind that this is, air quotes, his brother's wife. Although that's nonsense, she's a version of the myth, and Christian was married to another version. But both he and his brother have an obsession over the same woman. And I believe their father had a a similar obsession. So, you know, a, a fraternal confrontation is inevitable. Secondly, there's a man called Harry Keaton. He's this RAF pilot who was shot down over either Belgium or France and it's actually ambiguous in the text I think which it is but he has terrible burns on his body because of the um, because of being damned in his aircraft but he's got a gig taking aerial photographs of the area after the war so Steve engages his services to take some photos of Roho Wood. There's an immediate mystery where the plane suffers some kind of malfunction over the wood and they just can't fly over it. You know, curious. Now, Keaton looks like a sidekick character. You know, the sort of temp character your globe-trotting Cthulhu investigators might come across uh, to do a particular function, like fly a plane. But he's actually way more interesting. He has his own relationship with what he calls Ghost Woods. It seems when he was shot down, He actually found a ghost wood and glimpsed the gateway to a sort of heart of the wood, this Lavondis. So he's motivated to accompany Steve into the wood in pursuit of his brother after a violent confrontation, although we only hear about his motivations later. Most significantly, it's Keaton who's the direct link to the sequel. Now, I need to press on to talk about the second book, but just to outline the remainder of Mythago Wood. The thing is building up to an epic confrontation between Stephen, Christian, and the Erskimurg near the heart of the Wood, Lavondis. And as Stephen and Harry press on into the Wood on their quest, they encounter earlier ages of humans and Mythagos of, of warriors, you know, Roman and pre-Roman Britons and structures and monuments and landmarks and so on. It's amazingly atmospheric. And that's a theme which I'll cover in the later section. Now I'm going to talk about the sequel. Lavondis. So first, what is Lavondis? Well, if you've read any Helena Blavatsky, uh, I don't recommend it. Um, She refers to an imperishable sacred land, a sort of Shangri-La or similar cradle of creation. And the journey in this book is towards this place. Now, Mythago again, is a portmanteau of myth and imago, and Lavondis is a sort of compound of mythic lands from Britain's past. You know, Leonus, Albion, and that sort of thing. So it's a broad philosophical and mythic concept, but it's also realised in British myth. Now, this story concerns Talis Keaton, half-sister to Harry, but a bit younger than him. It opens with her grandfather going off to die in the dead of night by following a crone in a white mask, a character Talus later calls the Hollower. This hollowing is the ability to actually reach through into the mythic landscape and bring it forward through stories. Her grandfather passes on when she's an infant, but not before writing a letter to her outlining much of the detail about the mythago that we learned from the previous book. But it takes some time for Talus to awaken to the concepts of the Mythago. Initially, she can't comprehend what her grandfather had written. Um, so, as she develops, she makes several breakthroughs, and as a result, she's able to comprehend more of her grandfather's letter. Just like the last, this novel is divided into two parts. The first part concerns Talus's awakening, and then the second is a journey into the mythic space, much like Mythago would. So just as in Mythago Wood, we get a lot of the magical theory early on, but it's not just a repetition of previous concepts. Firstly, uh, it expands to include the landscape itself. If Mythago Wood was about mythic people, Lavondus is in some ways about the land itself. Not only that, but it develops the foundation set down in Mythago Wood. Plenty of this is expressed in speech between Talus and others, for example. This quote, Secret names are very hard to find out. They're in a part of the mind that is very closed off from thinking. Now, Talis explains that there are common names, private names, and secret names, and they can't be changed, only discovered. Another quote. Names are names, Talis pointed out. They exist. People find them out. But they don't change them. They can't. She later elaborates further on this in this quote. If you don't first accept the gift as it is, if you change what you hear or change what you learn, doesn't that make it weak somehow? So, when Talis tells stories, you know, stories that she seems to have learned, but also maybe intuited, she makes it clear that no one should interrupt because it will change or weaken the story. This motif is repeated at various points later, and I think there's a hint of this in Mythago Wood as well. Storytellers tell these precise stories, they don't vary words, and they even insist sometimes that the audience close their eyes. The whole idea is that if anything disrupts and changes the story, then it's made less pure somehow, as if stories themselves have a sort of bloodline. And this is the same concept as the way mythagos are affected by the observer, or, or observer or creator I guess, if your notion of Robin Hood is based on Michael Pray's character in the 1980s, the Methego will be different from that coming from earlier centuries. And the same seems to be true of the stories themselves. They can deviate from the original meaning by imperfect retelling. Now, I want to note something else about how Talus has approached this whole cosmology in reference to the first book. Firstly, George Huxley's approach was scientific, with a, a pretty clinical analysis of the Methego and their, their relationship with the land. But Talis, on the other hand, is learning from a single source, which is her grandfather, and extrapolating what she knows. So she's advancing her vision as a hollower as she identifies herself, pushing to understand more. And then with that knowledge, she can then comprehend more of what her grandfather wrote. So she's gradually developing. It's more from a position of, um, I guess, faith. It's not really faith. It's more like uh, trust trust in what her grandfather's written but it's it's very uh, it's much more holistic and much more accepting rather than challenging if you know what I mean it's I I suppose it's a trust in the mythago and their place in the mythic landscape that allows her to have this more holistic view of the situation and she does have something in common with Huxley namely pursuit of a fundamental image which was to Huxley was the Erskimug to her I guess it's the Lavondis, the, the original landscape. Talus' spiritual metamorphosis involves various visitations by certain avatars. and The first is a stag called Broken Boy, who's actually a mythago and visits her as an infant. And then crucially, at the end of the first book, he visits her again. When she steps into the other world, he makes it possible. However, her first step on the path to awakening is really provided by the Hollower, this sort of white-masked character who met her grandfather on the night of his death. She fashions a mask and, in wearing it, adopts the Hollower's aspects and abilities, in this case to see into the mythic landscape. There are other masks, and they turn up at dramatic points in her childhood. One of them turns up in the middle of a Morris dance. Now, if you don't know Morris dancing, there are various types, but the one most people think of, with all the hanky-waving, is Cotswold Morris and they tend to play music on the melodeon or concertina, and the set will be accompanied by a fool and sometimes a hobby horse, this decorated horse's head on a pole with a with a cloak to cover whoever's carrying it. So you have this horse's head towering over the other dancers. Ask me how I know this, by the way. So Talus has this visitation of an avatar in the middle of the dance, looking to everyone else like a dancer, but it's her, it's this spiritual being, here to show itself to her so she can fashion a mask. The scene's both... Spooky and really visceral. It has this real authenticity that's just on the edge of the ridiculous, but is actually powerful and frightening. So she's produced these masks, and in wearing them, she manages to see into the other world. She's channeling the mythic landscape by adopting these personae. And this is the point where she encounters Sceathach. I hope I pronounced that right. Now, this is a character who first appeared in a story she tells early on, about three princes. He's the youngest of the three, and after his two elder brothers are bequeathed castles, he asks what his will be, but he rejects all the options prevented for him, so instead his father proclaims that he will dwell in a castle that is made of stone that is not stone. I learnt up the name Scathhatch, and it's, it's apparently a, a female warrior from the Irish Ulster Cycle, I think, I hope that's right, who trained Kirkallain and lived in a castle of shadows on the Isle of Skye. Anyway, Talus has already observed Scathach quite a bit through her hollowings, but only remotely. But she then comes into physical contact with him while she's exploring the ruins of Oak Lodge, you know, George Huxley and, and Stephen Huxley's family home, which has been totally overgrown with huge trees penetrating the floors, totally ripping up the building. And, and she's found Huxley's notes on the Mythago. So here you have the intersection of the scientific and the holistic approaches to studying the myth. But she's also suddenly face-to-face with Scathach. So we have this Mithego communicating directly with the Hollower. And to Scathach, Oak Lodge is a temple. And Huxley's notes are sacred texts. And Talus removing them, which he has done, is a defilement. Scathatch doesn't believe he's a Mithego. But he reveres not the deep wood, but this place. You near know, Huxley's Lodge as the seat of some creator figure, which is a really interesting perspective for an invented being to have. And there's a sort of symmetry with Huxley's own quest for the Erskamug, the the fundamental mythago, and Scathach's reverence of a creator. Anyway, that happens, and Talis and Scathach become companions, and Talis follows Scathach into the wood at the end of the first part, and she does this by walking away from her father so this is you know symbolically the last part of her childhood she's just cast off there's one other notable point at the end of the first book the last chapter in the first book is called geist zones and that's a term coined by win jones and this is where we get the concept that it's not just mythic beings but mythic lands that are invented and of course also this scientific moniker that win jones has used is rev is resonant with the ghost woods that Harry Keaton referred to. All right, so it's probably time we talk about Harry then. So where is he? Well, for much of her awakening, Talus has been hearing her brother trapped in this other world, and her primary motive for crossing over is to help Harry. So previously, we had Stephen pursuing his brother. Now we have Talus trying to rescue hers. And like the first novel, this latter part of the book is a journey that she goes through, and again, I'm not going to go into too much detail because there's a lot of it and it would spoil it, but it's a kind of time travel and that's that's perhaps not too much of a surprise, knowing what we know about the first book. As she passes through the threshold of each vortex, she goes further back towards the earliest, most fundamental landscape, this lavondis that is her goal. She's going inward, as Christian Huxley said to Stephen. And crucially, as things get more primitive, she sheds the more civilised notions she has. Now, remember how Christian became leaner and more predatory and more primitive? You could argue that it's the landscape that's changing the observer. Or, you could say that in order to time travel back, the traveller needs to shed part of themselves to live in that time. It's not Dr. Who, you don't get to retain your future selves and simply observe the past. You have to participate in it. Now, even more interestingly, there are other travellers. And they've also changed. For some, it's about you know, accepting a spiritual role in the adoptive tribe. For others, it's about becoming harder and more brutal to survive. And there are acts of violence which would be unthinkable in 1950s England, which are commonplace here. So the quest here is like the previous book, but the destination is different. Mythago Wood is about mythic people, Lavondis is about mythic places, and Lavondis is this primal Ur landscape. And that's also why we get a really interesting clash to the 20th century romantic. Lavondis is this sort of romantic fairy tale land, but that's not what we find after everything that we call civilised is stripped away. And that's about as far as I can go with the plot without wrecking the ending, which I don't want to wreck because it's really good. So I'm going to leave it there and suggest you read it. Read both of them. You won't be disappointed. Let's go on to the themes. The first thing I want to talk about is what I'm going to term British rural fantasy. What does that mean? I'm going to use the definition of low fantasy that's applied to the land of laughs. Namely, a modern fantasy contained in the primary world. So you have our world and then a separate space in which fantastic elements happen. And the best examples I can think of are the British tea-time television series of my childhood. There's there's Robin of Sherwood, of course, and um, I really recommend the Grognath Files podcast where they do a deep dive into Robin of Sherwood. It's fantastic. Uh, but there's also these other ones. that us see, there's Children of the Stones, which is actually 1970s, um, moondial Into the Labyrinth, uh, which had three series, and Century Falls, which was written by Russell T. Davis before he did Doctor Who. And I really like it. Um, There are also book authors like uh, Alan Garner and Susan Cooper. Uh, Also, Margaret Mayhew fits in that, but she's actually from New Zealand, and the tone is not the same. Uh, And I'm sorry to say I didn't get into any of those authors until I was an adult, which is a bit of a shame. For adult fiction, uh, I'm struggling to think of British examples. There are American authors, of course. Give it doing the sort of same sort of small-town America thing. So obviously Jonathan Carroll and uh, Ray Bradbury. Of course, a lot of Ray Bradbury. And um, Peace by Gene Wolfe, which is on my reading poll. I've not read it yet. And for other media, uh, think about Twin Peaks. Now, I've blogged quite a bit in the past about the concept of liminal fantasy, and particularly in relation to the game Uh, Beyond the Wall it's an OSR RPG I think it's fantastic great value for money really different Um, now of course that's a secondary world but absolutely crucially it has the village which is a sort of a safe and relatively mundane environment that the characters return to after the end of their adventures and then the area outside the village is dangerous unknown and that's where they have adventures it's also rural and small scale away from large bodies of people Civilization here is small scale. Uh, and the series that I've mentioned fit into that niche as well. So, uh, Century Falls, for example, small rural community with a dark secret, psychic children, and a godlike being called Century. So, what I'm going to do is I'm, I want to break down this kind of setting because I think it's got so much potential. First, a rural community that's small, obviously. Second, this rural community is aware that it sits on the fringes of some magical landscape. Now, some characters are more aware than others, uh, but generally, the mundane human civilization there is accepting of a myth, and it might be a a non Christian myth or a weird, slightly inexplicable thing. Uh, It could be pagan. The village community is still grounded in the modern world, and it might struggle to explain what the myth is. Um, and sometimes the relationship between people and the myth is is a pragmatic one. You know, there's, uh, I guess if you had a rural farming community, you might have, um, I don't know, gifts left out for certain local gods because it just happens to make the wheat grow better. Obviously, this is isolated from wider civilization, which is really important. I think it's very important in games anyway. Um, What it means is there's no organisations to appeal to in a in any kind of meaningful time frame. Um, So you you can't you can't get help and you won't be pestered by large shadowy organisations whose scope you don't understand. And the magical force though, on the other side, is underpinned by local superstition or legend. That's really important. And of course you have the opportunity, if you want to do this kind of setting to plunder British mythic history. Uh, Rooting it in established myth gives it um, more credibility, I think, than some sect or god formed from whole cloth. Lastly, it's geographically well defined. What that means is you can present a map with the various features and the audiences aware of where the liminal spaces are. You know, things like that. There's a manor house here where the Baron lives and there's a bit of a recluse and strange things go on there. Or there's a waterfall where a strange shining golden figure has been seen. Or there's a weird monument up on the hill. But you can draw the whole village on a map. And that's really important for the player's sense of agency, for one thing, because they know that they can move within this space. All this probably sounds a lot like a recipe for a Call of Cthulhu scenario except the characters are usually locals or insiders at least with relationships to one another. As a result it's also a bit like Monster Hearts in that regard. Monster Hearts or at least the the game I played has a really great phase of creating your homeroom and and the, the town that you play in. However I will say this, though, that Monster of a has no liminal boundary. Everything is magical, and everything's mundane at the same time. There's no crossing over. There is another game uh, that gets mentioned on the Good Friends of Jackson Elias podcast, and that's Heaven and Earth, which is another American RPG set in a fictional town called Potter's Lake, with, uh, and it's got connotations of biblical myth, I understand, and it sounds an awful lot like Twin Pigs as well. So there's plenty of examples, but overall, I think this is possibly one of the most attractive settings, either for primary world or secondary world fiction and games. Okay, so that is the premise. Now I want to start talking a bit about um, the landscape and the liminal aspects of it. Um, so I'm going to kind of take an aside here and, and say, I finally read I finally read Michael Moorcock's Wizarding World Romance this summer which is his collection of essays on why he hates Tolkien. Sorry, his essays on the epic fantasy. And there are six chapters that cover various topics and several digs at Tolkien. The most damning is this criticism of those who follow Tolkien's pattern, and it's found in my favourite chapter, which is the Exotic Landscapes chapter.
1: It seems significant to me that the majority of the writers who closely followed Tolkien have not produced much in the way of original landscape. Deserts and mountains are
0: vast and forests are dense. dense. So that's probably my favourite chapter. Uh, One of the reasons it's my favourite is it draws on a lot of diverse sources, including J.G. Ballard and Jack Vance. Mostly, Morkick is praising the weird, alien and apocalyptic landscapes. But he also quotes Mithago Wood as well. And it's worth noting that this was 1987, so Mithago Wood was only a few years in print, and... Even the likes of Ballard and M. John Harrison were relatively new. Now, speaking of M. John Harrison, he's famously wrote a blog post entitled Very Afraid. 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 But the original post and the blog is gone. I found it on Warren Ellis' blog, and it's also held up as an anti-Tolkien commentary, although he doesn't mention any author by name. This is the passage which I'm going to quote in full. Every moment of a science fiction story
1: must represent the triumph of writing over world building. World building is dull. World building literalizes the urge to invent. World building gives an unnecessary permission for acts of writing, indeed for acts of reading. World building numbs the reader's ability to fulfill their part of the bargain, because it believes that it has to do everything around here if anything is going to get done. Above all, world building is not technically necessary. It is the great clomping foot of nerdism. It is the attempt to exhaustively survey a place that isn't there. A good writer would never try to do that. Even with a place that is there, it isn't possible. And if it was, the results wouldn't be readable. They would, be, they would constitute not a book, but the biggest library ever built. A hallowed place of dedication and lifelong study. This gives us a clue to the psychological type of the world builder and the world builder's victim. And it makes us very afraid.
0: So I feel the same as Harrison and Moorcock. That's well, not really a surprise. Um, this urge to map out entire worlds in far too much detail is the enemy of actual plot and fantasy, and especially a good RPG. Now, I wrote this back in 2015 when commenting on Harrison's post. I'm not
1: keen on normal RPG box. I like a strong premise that invites me to get on with creative stuff here and now in the game. I don't really like other people's adventures, let alone campaign settings, and my principal issue with our habitual subtalking world building the infests the hobby is this. When you flag to the players that the world is a massive construction by the mere presence of such monstrously detailed settings, it's very hard for a character to start with the idea that I am here and this is all there is, and then be surprised by an unseen world and truly hooks into the adventure. This is why I like Beyond the Wall, and why I think the Lord of the Rings only goes downhill after the Hobbits leave
0: the Shire. So I still feel that way. You may have a massive secondary world where events are happening elsewhere. Well, so what? The fantasy I like is focused on the here and now, as I said, and it doesn't bother to extrapolate features that the protagonists aren't directly involved in. Now, we allow this kind of abuse in a lot of fantasy fiction, and especially in RPGs. Of all the crimes that White Wolf has committed, for example, this dogmatic cataloguing and mapping out of the world of darkness is the very worst. It sets expectations that can never be met, and it ruins the mystery. So, here's my argument. This rural liminal fantasy idea is the antidote to excessive building. The landscape beyond the wall, or beyond the gate, or beyond the edge, whatever, is implied, but it's rarely explicitly mapped out. The characters have a a small world that they can survey, the village, and the magical landscape is a mystery with no apparent scope. And that's as it should be. And this kind of leads to my third point, which is the three perspectives on this magical otherworld, this liminal space. The first one is the scientific, and this is the Ghostbusters viewpoint that the you know, magical world can be measured and explained in modern terms. With it, you get this whole lot of invented terminology, You know the name Mythago itself, geist zones, the vortex, etc., uh, etc. Et and even though it seeks to explain, it doesn't actually dismiss the Mythago. Sometimes uh, science is portrayed, when there's a clash between science and magic, as the adversary of magic. It denies the existence of magic but that's not what happens in Mithago Wood, and that's not what should happen to Ghostbusters. They know there's something weird going on. So that's the scientific. And the second one we have is the romantic. And this viewpoint focuses on the images, the, the you know, Robin Hood and other characters. And this perspective humanizes the Mithago and, and connects them with human experience and different cultures. Then we have the third perspective, which is Talus's perspective, And I'm not exactly sure what to call it. I guess exploratory, maybe even primitive. But this is about walking a path. It's about taking the stories at face value and being careful to be authentic. It's about lived experience. Now, the important thing is these three are not at all incompatible. But the first two, the scientific and romantic, are objective and external they're biased by modern experience. It's obvious how science can be biased by modern experience. You know, you, you view everything with a, with a scientific lens. The romantic view is biased as well, though. Um, so if you're aware of multiple instances of the same story, which one is the lived experience you need to engage with? And crucially, Tiles' story is about shedding all of those biases. And my final point on this bit is, we know that other characters have attempted to penetrate in the past and haven't been successful. And my argument is, it's this bias, this inability to engage with the story at face value, that actually holds them back from getting further into the the next level, into the past, closer to Lavondis, this land. And that's where Talis does actually succeed. Right, so... With all this in mind, I am now going to talk about role-playing. The RPG Bench. Let's say you're running a liminal fantasy role-playing game which involves ordinary people gaining magical awareness and penetrating into a magical realm. Very popular, lots of different examples we've got of that. What if crossing over into the other world didn't rely on a particular strength or power or magic item, but actually required the absence of something the absence of some preconceived notion, such as uh, the concept of civilization, for example. Now, let's take um, Holstock's example, where there's a certain acceptance of violence and a more primitive existence needed to pass deeper into the past. And and I know I'm oversimplifying things because there's also an element of spiritual awakening needed and, and attunement to uh, an earlier existence, Um But but just use this for a sake of argument. Here's a couple of ways you can achieve this in a role-playing game design. If you want a simple method, and your plot suits you to do so, have a sliding scale that at one end relates to modern sociability, and the other end, primitive predatory behaviour. That might work if the magical landscape is exacting a cost on the character such that when they return to normal civilisation, they're a little less civilised and cause a reaction in those around them and if we think about it this is pretty much what call of cthulhu's sanity is doing if you want more than one dimension like that then uh, unknown armies is an option that has several different tracks of measures of people being hardened to horror and violence and that mechanism is also used in greg stolz's nemesis game which uses the one the one roll engine so you already have ready-made systems for this kind of thing if you're clever in rebranding or reskinning those mechanics and the cost of traveling to the other magical world is to become less able to function on your own again totally call of cthulhu now here's a more complicated way to do it that i kind of like better but it needs more work let's say we tend to view our role-playing game characters as monolithic containers of skills and experience they're on the table list of skills list of abilities they are a single thing Now, consider this alternative. Characters have a functional core with a bunch of beliefs all around them. Call those uh, baggage, encumbrances, whatever. Um, But these beliefs help them negotiate modern society. But in order to awaken magically, they need to get rid of them. They're not shedding core competencies when they get rid of them. We're not not treating these like memories or, or levels and then subjecting them to level drain. We're not asking a player to change the lived experience of their character, but we are talking about a metamorphosis whereby a PC sheds an inhibition. That inhibition may have had a functional value in the real world, but it actually restricts the practice of magic. Well then, how do you represent that on a character sheet? I would suggest make your character sheet a circle in the middle where you put your character's core competencies. Then, consider three layers of epidermis, concentric circles moving out. Each one represents functioning at a different level of society. The outermost layer is the easiest to shed, being... Without it has the fewest consequences. And in this layer, write superficial acquaintances, personality quirks, modern trappings and addictions. And in play, cross these off as you awaken magically. And as you do so, write something you gain from the magical world in the inner circle, in your core. The next circle may have things of a higher value. These could be closer friendships, working relationships, attitudes to violence and so on. And finally, the third circle is the things you hold most dear, and also lines that you previously said you wouldn't cross. Now, maybe you want your characters to retain their humanity, so say you have five things in the outer circle, and to awaken to the first layer, you need the PC to shed three of those five. As they awaken further, they need to shed more aspects. Or, maybe instead of shedding these parts of their lives, they corrupt them. Casual friendships become uneven or or abusive, statements about which lines you would cross change so maybe by changing the world e.g change I will not harm the innocent to I will not kill the innocent or maybe I will harm the innocent not necessarily habitually but as a prophetic statement for the GM to use later I'm going to bake this idea for a bit longer and, and see what happens Afterthoughts. Oh, so these are my final thoughts um I've done four episodes on this topic now with fictional secondary worlds inside a primary world so i just want to summarize lev grossman's the magicians and sequels is about discovering a magical other world although it looks like the children are exploring a world created by christopher plover it's actually the other way around plover turns the kids adventures into a world-loved fantasy series but it's interesting in either direction Second, we have Jonathan Carroll's Land of Laughs, which concerns the legacy of a children's author, Marshall France, who's basically invented almost an entire town and written their destinies. Thirdly, we have Robert W. Chambers' King in Yellow, which concerns a play that drives people mad. Well, you knew that. Um, And it's assumed that this is some kind of gateway to an actual deity. But what if this deity is, like the mythago, reliant on human belief and imagination? the play becomes a self-perpetuating virus as it propagates itself through society. The logical extrapolation is that there could be different versions of the same fiction and different interpretations of the play's significance. And then finally we have Methego Wood and sequels, as we've just discussed, about special places giving rise to walking myths which become self-aware and autonomous. But there's a fifth one uh, from an earlier episode we did, Uh, which is Nabokov's Pale Fire, and related to that, The Prisoner of Zender. In that, I proposed a game called Pale Assassins, where Ruritania is a fictional country, and the characters are exiles from that country and have formed their own colony. Normally, these fictional characters wither and die, unless they can feed off someone out in the real world. But a critical mass of them, such as a colony, can be self-sustaining. So this colony is out in the real world, pretending to be normal and hoping that the Ruritanian assassins don't find them and destroy their existence. That idea relied on the concept that fictional beings don't exist out in the real world for too long. The same is true for the Gainalites in A Land of Laugh, and also for the Mithago. as we hear that uh, Christian is convinced that Gwyneth would still be alive if he hadn't taken her out of the wood. So then, what if the Mithago came out of the wood and formed a colony outside? What if they had children who were then ignorant of their heritage? And finally, what if the wood dispatched agents to find this colony and steal the children back to the wood? Well then, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and until until next time, cheerio!
1: If you like this episode, please like, share and subscribe. Give us a review on iTunes, or otherwise spread the word. We're on Twitter and Facebook as well. All music in this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com